Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me, and today I'm talking to Neil Stevenson. Welcome, Neil. It's good to be here. Thanks I'm, for having me on your podcast. Thanks for coming. I'm going to give you a formal intro because you merit a formal intro. You ready? Okay, I'll embrace myself. I typed it up myself. Neil Stevenson is one of the most influential science fiction writers in the world. He's the author of works like Snow Crash, The Diamond Age, Cryptonomicon. He's the person who helped us imagine the internet, virtual reality. He's also deeply involved in the science part of the science fiction. He was the first hire at Blue Origin. That's Jeff Bezos' private rocket company. He was the – what was your title at Magic Leap? Chief Futurist. You're the Chief Futurist at Magic Leap, the ambitious augmented reality headset company. He's the co-founder of Lamina One, a blockchain company that wants to help usher in the metaverse, a term that you coined in 1992. And if you are listening to this on Monday, March 6th, you have the opportunity to bid on Neil's – what do we call it? Not your ephemera, not it's, your juvenilia. Uh, it's multiple items. Some of them, you know, you could call ephemera. Uh, the 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 bidding closes at two in the afternoon, Eastern time on Monday, um, Monday uh, March sixth. At Sotheby's. What's that? At Sotheby's. This is Sotheby's. Stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sotheby's. Yeah, yeah. So there's an exhibit. If you're lucky enough to be in New York City, you can go see this stuff in a very nice exhibit they put together. Uh, up on 72nd Street. But it's a few things. It's um, two different versions of the original manuscript for Snow Crash that I pulled out of storage last year. It is some original artwork that uh, uh artist named Tony Sheeter and I produced before Snow Crash was a thing, part of a graphic novel project that was like a precursor to Snow Crash, and um, a painting that was used as the cover of the, the mass market paperback, and kind of the big ta-da sort of item is a magnificent Japanese sword, an actual sword and a case and some other goodies that were made by Weta Workshop in New Zealand and that are based on kind of original story material in the Snow Crash universe that nobody's seen yet, but this sword is an unbelievably magnificent piece of work and uh, comes with an NFT, which is a fully detailed three-dimensional digital twin of the thing um, and uh, worth a look if you like swords and or NFTs. I get a real kick out of all of this. I was looking this morning on the website. We're recording this a couple of days in advance. Someone's bid $35,000 for one of these manuscripts. It's an obvious question, but I'll ask it anyway. When you're typing this stuff up 30 years ago, I think you write in longhand too, right? Uh, back in those days, I was typing. You were it. typing. Yeah, the longhand thing is a more recent. I know you didn't imagine you'd be auctioning off this stuff for $35,000 or more at Sotheby's. Did you have any sense that this is going to be a breakthrough piece of fiction for you personally? I had um, kind of got to the end of this graphic novel project. Dioxin Posse was the name of it. And um, it was really interesting, but it just became clear that it was a dead end commercially. Nobody was going to was gonna buy this thing. And so I, I just thought, okay, 
I'm just going to cash in what chips I've got here and just write something really weird. This, you were multiple novels into your career. Yeah, I had published two novels previously, and um, both of them actually were written in kind of when I was desperate in one way or another. And Snow Crash, I wasn't didn't feel quite that desperate because I published a couple books, but I was like, okay, I'm just going to go for it with this thing. And I'm going to throw in a lot of stuff that I've become aware of in the last couple of years because I had to write a lot of code. Dioxin Posse was a big computer graphics project, among other things. And so I was deep into the headspace of computer graphics and code writing and user interfaces. And so I just kind of threw the kitchen sink into it in the form of the metaverse. I'm just trying to imagine what it's like. At what point do you realize, oh, this book is well-received, it means something to a number of people. Does that happen right away? It's been, th I got to this book 15 years ago. It's been around for 30. Yeah. What's the build of a book like that that is totemic now for a lot of people in tech and, and the broader world? It was a very slow burn. It was a real steady seller for 30 years. But there was, in publishing, you know, what they aim for now is a, just an incredible spike. Right, so you can land on the top, the bestseller list. Exactly. Uh, or the, so, the Amazon ranking, either one. Either one, yeah. But either way, it's you're gaming the system to try to get that spike, and that has knock-on effects that are really desirable. So this was not one of those. My editor, Jennifer Hershey, who was – I got to see her at the exhibit the other night, but she's still at Penguin Random House. But she was a junior uh, editor at that point, very young, uh, very energetic, really believed in the book. And so she did a couple things that sound small, but were big. One of the things was that in those days, reviewers were less likely to take a book seriously if it was paperback. Mm -hmm. And so she somehow printed up something like 2,000 copies of a hardcover that she could mail to reviewers to make them think it was <laughs> a hardcover original. And those are now really valuable collector's items because there's so few of them. And then she like she wrapped uh, hundreds of copies of the the galleys, the page proofs, in like iridescent paper and mailed them off. Just anything she could think of to kind of make it stand out and pique people's interest. We got some good quotes from uh, William Gibson and Timothy Leary, and it just started to go, but not with a huge splash. But uh, you know, like a year later, a friend of mine who's a writer came up to me and said, "So what's it like?" And I was like what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he was referring to the fact that the book had succeeded. It had gone somewhere. And I hadn't even been cognizant of that was it. Your first, that was your first sign that it had gone somewhere, is that someone told you a year later? Yeah, because you don't, I mean, now you can, moment to moment, sure. you can track the sales numbers on Amazon. And a lot of writers drive themselves crazy doing that. Uh, but back then, the only way to know was to you try to badger the publisher and ask them for for some sales figures. And even those aren't don't mean anything because it it's how many books have been bought by booksellers. Book yeah, yeah, not by not by readers. So they they those numbers might all go away if the the books get returned. Yeah. So it's a it's hard to imagine now, but there was this real long lag back in those days. And it's also pre-internet as we know it. So you didn't see like a buzz, you know, on social media or any of that. It was just a bunch of disconnected BBSs. And 
And when did you get a sense that the Jeff Bezoses and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world were really not just that copies were being sold, that this was really meaningful to tech people who were building things? I started kind of hearing about that, again, kind of in the mid-90s as the internet became a thing. And initially, I was just on The Well, which is an early mm-hmm. BBS, um, and there were a lot of tech people there. So I started getting the idea that it was well-received. I started to hear from people in the tech industry who were reading it. It just kind of gradually became clear. You know, when Google Earth came out, I can't remember what year that was, but word reached me through the grapevine that the Earth application described in Snow Crash had been somewhat inspirational for that. So at that point, I was like, okay, holy shit, you know, maybe people are actually taking this seriously. And then cut to last year when Mark Zuckerberg renames his company Meta and says, I want to build the metaverse and spend billions of dollars. And it's, everyone at that point realizes this. And then all the obligatory stories say, this is in reference to your book, 1992. Did he reach out to you prior to that? No, and not after either. So there's been zero communication. I know you've been asked this before, but I'm going to ask anyway. Your your book, like a lot of science fiction, not all science fiction, but a lot of science fiction, it's describing a dystopia, and it struck a lot of people, including me, to be weird, that it's weird that a consumer company, one of the biggest companies in the world with 2 billion users, would say, this is the future we're, we're pivoting toward. What do you make of that gap? So a couple things. One is like Snow Crash is a dystopian novel, but it's also kind of a parody of dystopian novels because even then the main character is named hero protagonist yeah and you know there had been enough of that kind of literature out there that the tropes had become familiar and so and just rehashing them without any self-awareness or or humor would have been a little weird so there's that and then you know the world the real world is certainly got its dystopian aspects in that book but the metaverse itself i think is kind of neutral I mean, the first parts of it that we see are kind of garish and, you know, people are playing violent games and there's lots of ads and tacky crud there. It's the first thing that meets the eye when you go into the metaverse. But it's also made clear that there are people like Hero and Ng who have put a huge amount of effort into making extraordinarily beautiful, detailed houses that they can live in in the metaverse. Yeah, to me, the striking thing is not so much that the metaverse is dystopian as that it's built to sort of escape a world that is dystopian. And we've seen that again in a bunch of novels. And it just seems like a weird thing to say, this is the future. We think this is great because it implies the rest of the world is going to fall apart. Yeah, you'd have to to ask ask I think he's been asked, but I'll ask him again next time I see him. Let me ask you about Lamino One, blockchain company. If this was a year ago... I would say, oh, it makes sense that Neil Stevenson's really into blockchain and crypto and because everyone was really interested in this and, and why not? You know, why, why wouldn't someone who'd help sort of imagine this stuff be involved in it? Now there's a decided lack of enthusiasm for that. First of all, why don't you explain what, what Lamina One is and why you're building it? It's a layer one blockchain uh, startup that um, – so Let's translate layer one. So, yeah, so uh, that just means the, the most basic layer of a, of a blockchain system uh, that can be used to support currencies and smart contracts and various other features. And um, probably the first one that most people have heard of is Bitcoin. 
Ethereum, and there's many others. Anyone can start one. The building blocks using blockchain, and then people can build on top of that is the idea. Right. On top of that, you can build other layers of functionality that serve you know, particular goals. The idea here is that if you're going to build a metaverse, you've got to have certain kind of engineering infrastructure in place to make that work. And um, there's different approaches that you can take. You can centralize the whole thing if you want. But to me, it smacks of a decentralized kind of approach uh, where, uh, and this is not an original idea. Even back in the early 90s, I got to know people who were building uh, a system called Habitat, which was like an early metaverse. And they had realized even then that if you're building a system that actually does this, then other people's code is going to run on your computer. And that's really the key insight behind a lot of this is that if I make an avatar that's got a particular shader, uh, a texture, you know, some kind of algorithmic content in it, and I'm interacting with you, then there's some kind of decentralized system in place that enables my avatar to kind of be rendered and execute on your hardware and vice versa. And so how do you do that securely? And how do you handle the the financial transactions that are implied by all of that. Because in order to make the hair and the accessories and the clothing and the animations and all of the other things that make up an avatar or another part of a virtual experience, you need uh, a whole cast of characters behind the scenes. You need animators, you need texture artists, programmers, sound designers. And if those people aren't getting paid, aren't getting compensated and recognized for the work that they're doing, then why should they do it? You know, why should they contribute their efforts uh, to working on something like this? So what does the payment system look like that enables that? And how can we build a payment system uh, that's kind of transparent and that's based on people, um, you know, engaging in, in these microtransactions all over the place all the time? as opposed to kind of an advertising-based model or a model that's based on on kind of monetizing people's personal information. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a, that all adds up to a pretty strong overlap with what blockchain does. And so it makes sense that, that we could use blockchain as the basis for, for that kind of a system. You know, the, the fact that it <laughs> crashed and burned last year is, uh, you know, it's... Um, what does that teach you, if anything? Mostly I think of it in terms of volatility. Why is it volatile? You know, and I think that I did a talk at DICE, the video game convention last week about this. When you think about famous crashes, uh, like, like the, the one that's always referred to as the tulip bulb mm -hmm. bubble in uh, the Netherlands in the 1600s, um, <clears throat> you know... There's some uh, common threads you can identify that explain that volatility. And in the case of tulip bulbs, you know, first of all, people don't need tulip bulbs to live. And they don't have any uh, kind of sentimental or intangible value either. It's just a thing people own yep. because they hope they can make money. And there's a market for them that's, that's very liquid. So that adds up to a recipe for, for volatility. But when I think about the kind of virtual goods uh, that matter to me, like I play Valheim, a lot of people play Fortnite. Uh, in those games, you can have avatars, you can have 
You can build structures that are permanent in the world. Uh, you can run around and have adventures with your friends. And over time, those virtual goods become important to you. It's not as important as having a house. Uh, right, but it, it has value. It has value. It has an you earned it somehow or it, you like it. Yeah. And so you're, you're not as keen to just dump it on the market the moment the market starts to, to go down. So I think that the way to, um, to get to a less volatile condition in those markets is to have uh, a market in virtual goods that are like that, basically. The people I talked to who are in games, and we spent a lot of time talking about this over the last year, would say that idea that this that blockchains will enable people to take their sword from Fortnite and go play in Valheim misjudges what people what gamers want. Yeah. They don't really care. They might enjoy using the sword in Fortnite, but they don't think it's more valuable if they can take it to Valheim. They don't the yeah. two things are separate. And more importantly, the people who make those games have no incentive oh, for sure. to make that cross functionality. And then more broadly, I just spent a lot of the last year having people who were excited about blockchain come in and I would say what can we do with this other than speculate on it? Yeah, yeah. And then everything would get sort of, well, one day this, yeah. one day that. Is this just a matter of we're too far away from this stuff being in the world for people to get their head around it? And and if so, when when does that happen? Yeah, I think, you know, as far as the game industry is concerned, um, you know, people who make games are artists, and they really care about what they're doing. And you can see it in a good game. You can see every detail of the art direction and sound design and the writing is integrated into a coherent whole. And so the idea that you could bring an alien object into such a game and use it is kind of an abomination, mm -hmm. you know, sort of an insult to the people who make those games. And on the other hand, there are games like Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft that are mashups creatively uh, by design. And so you can go into Fortnite and you can run around in a group that consists of John Wick and Iron Man and a banana. There's an Apollo Creed character there yeah, right now. Apollo, right, Apollo Creed. And that's your team and you're running around mm -hmm. and it's fine. Nobody cares about the, the aesthetic uh, kind of incoherence of it. And that, to me, is much more metaverse -y than than like a AAA video And not game. coincidentally, those companies all think of themselves in one way or another as metaverse -y companies. Yeah. I think, you know, what we'll see is probably zones in the metaverse that are a little bit like Ren Fairs today. You know, you go to a Ren Fair in the real world and, you know, if you're constantly checking your cell phone or whatever, um, you're not getting into the spirit of the thing. You're, you're there to experience a uh, a certain aesthetic uh, reality for a few I haven't hours. been to one of these for a long time. This is where you're walking around getting your meat and your turkey leg and yeah. playing with swords. Right, right. You know, that's the kind of thing where uh, where maybe if you're if you're going around and you've got a, a lightsaber and a sniper rifle in your inventory, maybe those don't cross over into the historical game because you know they just wouldn't fit there. But beyond the aesthetics and whether the culture mashup makes sense for, and maybe some things will never sort of allow different stuff. But how far do you think we are from real world practical versions of this? And if you talk to the Epic Games people, they say, "Well, we've built part of the metaverse right now. It's this game." Yeah. But it only it's just that game. You doesn't you know you can if they want to have an Apollo Creed character, they have to design it and create it for you, and it can't go anywhere else. Right. And so where do you think we'll see? Okay, this is a more 
whatever version of the metaverse you're imagining will actually show up and you'll participate in it in some way. Yeah. So the, I mean, I, I'm not uh, inclined to, you know, prognosticate uh, about it. I come from a family background of engineers and scientists and it's kind of a roll up your sleeves, what do, do we it. need to do kind of environment. So right now I, I'm not seeing the, uh, the, the infrastructure that creators would need to make this interesting. So step one is to get to work on that, which is the purpose of, of Lamina One. And then if we, if we do our job, then people will start showing up and, and building stuff and, um, and we'll just see where it goes from there. And is this your full-time job right now? Are you doing this in lieu of writing? So 2022 was the year of metaverse, the year of the M word for me. And I just kind of, it was, I think, October 28th, 2021 when uh, when it all started with the the meta announcement and so I basically dedicated that year to just kind of handling everything that came out of that um, including co-founding Lamina one doing a lot of speaking and press but the plan was always and remains that in 2023 I tapered down pretty drastically and get back to to creating content. And that means probably in the mornings I'm writing a novel that I've been trying to write now for 10 years. So I've started doing that. January 1st, 2023, I actually forced myself to sit down and focus on that for a couple hours. And in the afternoons, I'm hoping to um, make some headway actually building some content of a metaverse nature. I saw in an interview you talked about, uh, you said you're interested in game engines as cultural media for new creative work. So should I assume that there's going to be a Neil Stevenson game that I'm going to be able to play at some point? I'm trying to build uh, something like that. It's uh, There's a lot of uh, hoops to jump through uh, first involving um, rights and financing that are very boring to, to talk about. But um, Not for me. That's my that's, that's why that's, I nerd out on that, that stuff. That's your deal? Yeah. Well... It's part of the what we're calling the extended Snow Crash universe timeline, which is sequel prequel material, basically to to Snow Crash. That so it's, it sounds like you may not have the rights to to make your own book into something. The rights to the original book, both well, the 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 so filmed and interactive rights are currently controlled by Paramount. Okay, and then we're previously Amazon, I think, owned them. It's well, I think they've always been there, but from time to time, the way it works in that industry is that a project will get set up at a company that has money. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I was going to ask you this later, but we're here now. Why hasn't any of your work been turned into a movie, television show, game, especially over the last few years where – this is stop. It's changing now, um, pretty quickly. But there was so much money being thrown at stuff people could put on streamers. You know, a company like Amazon has essentially no limits on what they can spend. Um, your work means a lot to a lot of people. It's established IP. You'd think this would, and people have tried to do, have created versions of the stuff that you've written about in the past. Those have been movies. Ready Player One is a movie. Why? Why hasn't there been a Neil Stevenson work that I've been able to play or watch? My my theory is that a, a witch placed a curse on me. <laughs> so uh, that's that's the current going theory. My uh, producing partner and I 
just refer to what you've just described as the curse. So we've been uh, working on trying to break the curse, and the currently the leading contender is that there's some work underway to adapt uh, a book I co-wrote called Dodo into a, a television series. And it's still in the early stages, so it's got a lot of hoops to jump through. But um, and and all you know, you've worked for Jeff Bezos. You, uh, no, none of these gazillionaires, billionaires, richest people in the world ever said, "I'm just going to set this up for you." I'm such a mega fan. I'm just going to open up my pocketbook and we're going to make this thing happen. That sounds like a great plan to uh -huh. me. I like that. Okay, I like that plan. When you try to implement that plan, sometimes some complications can arise, which again I can't get into right now. But you know, you want smart money. You want people who actually know how to to put all the pieces together and produce something. And it is a complicated industry. You know, the distribution, how to actually get something produced. Yeah. You know. I was wondering if you were going to say, well, look, I mean, up until recently, it's been impossible technically to make the stuff that I've written into something visual or a game. And I didn't want to do a half-assed version. I don't want to – I would hate to have seen what a 1997 version of the metaverse looked like. Well, I've had that thought a lot of times. Yeah, yeah it's kind of there but for the grace of God, you know, because – There is a William Gibson movie. It's not that good. If, if someone had done a – adaptation of Snow Crash in 1995, they would have said, what's the coolest, snazziest computer graphics, you know, we can get right now? Mm -hmm. And we'll have that be the metaverse. And then five years later, people would be looking at it like, oh, my God, they used to think that was cool looking. And I, I've had a few conversations over the decades with people who were investigating at adapting Snow Crash, and the, their their ideas have changed over time. And at a certain point, it flipped over and it became, you know, we'll just shoot everything on film because the, the metaverse would be film quality, you know, graphics for sure. And then we'll, we'll manipulate it. We'll add digital, you know, tweaks to make it clear that this is the metaverse and not the real world. How, how much does it bother you that this has not happened? You know, be careful what you wish for, I guess. It's... um. Uh, sometimes better to have the aspiration of something or wouldn't it be cool, mm -hmm. you know, than um, to face some of the compromises that may happen when it really materializes. But I don't lose sleep over it because I can still write novels, right? And so it's much more frustrating if you're, say, a film director or a screenwriter and you can't, you can't get stuff made because you need other people to to mobilize huge amounts of capital, you know, to, to, to make that real. But there's a weird way in which novelists, even broke novelists, have got a kind of status in that world that is very high status because they have creative control. You um, make the thing. Yeah. Exactly the way you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. And so I can remember when I was, you know, way back in the 80s, I was talking to screenwriters who'd been hired to adapt like some of my work and um, you know, they're, they're driving Porsches around Beverly Hills. I'm starving, but they would look to me, they would come to me and say, you know, how do you, how did you become a writer? How could I become a novelist? You know, because in their mind, status isn't money, it's creative control. And they wanted that kind of status. You can't pay your rent with status though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. We'll be back with Neil Stevenson after a word from a sponsor. Startups. You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. 
Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I wanted to ask you about Magic Leap because I was fascinated with this company. Um, it, it drew a lot of attention in part just because it had raised a ton of money from Google. And this was a few years ago when people hadn't really got their heads around AR and VR yet. And the other part of the excitement was that lots of people would go down to Florida where this thing was based and come back and say, I signed an NDA and I can't talk about it, but I can tell you that it's mind-blowingly amazing. <laughs> yeah. You're never going to believe this. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people went down and said that. Uh, you got involved, which seemed very excited to me, and cut to basically they ended up producing a very expensive headset that has not taken off, that they're trying to put into – create for industrial use. It just really yep. hasn't worked. What what did you learn working at Magic Leap and, and how does that inform your vision of, of augmented reality, virtual reality and whether or not we're going to have goggles? Because again, people are continuing to try this. Meta is still trying it. Apple is going to roll out a version of this. Yeah. Um, the tech world seems to think it's a thing we want. Yeah. So um, on kind of a nuts and bolts level, I learned a lot about game engines and content production, but kind of zooming out a little bit, the um, in terms of a lot of money, it's this, you know, like if I came to you and said, I want to open a lemonade stand on my front sidewalk and I, I'm trying to raise $100 million, you'd say, well, that's a lot of money. But if I said I'm trying to launch a Mars colony, and I'm trying to raise $100 million, mm-hmm. you'd be like, that's not enough. So this is one of those with the whole AR headset thing. I have no way of knowing how much Microsoft put into what they did or Apple's putting into what they're doing, but I'm pretty sure that it's more in the aggregate than magically raised sure. and spent. And the output, you know, the the result of it was this thing that works. It's still the the as far as I can tell the best ambulatory AR system in existence and some of the uh, applications that came out of it were amazing like the Weta workshop produced a game called Dr. Grodbort's Invaders that is still I mean this is years ago now but it's still just a phenomenally powerful and successful game so they accomplished a lot but as you say you know the um the question is always are we going to like do the big thing you know make the jump into hyperspace by selling hundreds of millions of these things to ordinary consumers, or are we going to stick with the commercial industrial market? And later in sort of 2019, 2020, I think Magic Leap was starting to make that pivot toward the mm-hmm. commercial. Out of necessity, just yeah. like Google Glass did. Yeah. And HoloLens, I think, was always kind of that that way. And then what sealed the deal was was covid and the, the financial crash and just the, the fact that at that point, you know, belt tightening had to, to happen. Do you, do you think in the future we are going to where people – assuming the tech gets there and assuming there's a reason to use it, which are both huge things, that humans want to wear goggles. I went and saw the new Avatar a couple months ago and it's a three-hour movie and I was seeing it in IMAX with the headset on. An hour and a half in, I'm like, I don't want to wear this these goggles anymore. It's a long yeah, time. That, that you, you hit your limit. I mean, there's a semantic 
distinction between glasses and goggles, mm -hmm. right? So lots of people wear glasses all day, and uh, nobody thinks twice about it. Um, very few people wear goggles all day. Like you go skiing, maybe you'll put on goggles. Fighter pilots wear goggles, but goggles are not generally a long-term wear kind of item. Um, no matter how good the experience is, um, you know, wearing that stuff for, as you say, more than 45 minutes or an hour is, uh, is not enjoyable for a lot of people. On the other hand, you know, this, the game industry has taught everyone to experience 3D worlds through a, a rectangle, a flat rectangle on yep. the screen. It works great. And when you're using your WASD keys and your keyboard and your mouse or whatever your control system is, and people just fluently pick that up and they'll, they'll play that for hours. So, you know, I think that goggles are going to be a thing. I like goggles. You know, I know people who make goggles um, of various types and um, I can't wait to see what comes out of that industry. But I think that most people are going to uh, continue experiencing 3D worlds most of the time through screens. And does the metaverse work if it's a screen, a flat screen experience oh, for totally, most people? That's, totally. yeah. So that's fine. Yeah, I keep forgetting to mention this, but um, but yeah, in my view, the metaverse, you know, initially is going to be experienced by almost everyone on flat on a television set or an iPhone. Yeah, some version of that. Yeah, because that's just that's the reality. That's what the market is. You've mentioned in several times you come from a tech background, you did coding yourself, but you weren't working for Jeff Bezos. You, um, I assume you have access to lots and lots of the brightest, most advanced people and most advanced tech. How does that change how you write about science fiction now that you've been sort of exposed to cutting edge stuff and a different kind of science than you were exposed to in the 80s and early 90s? I think it's more to do with kind of the business of how these things work. So science is always kind of the same. It is what it is. Uh, and you can learn about it by um, reading papers or textbooks or whatever. But the business of how science gets done, how technology gets developed, um, is, a, is a whole different thing. Um, and I assume the people too, right? Once you yeah. get exposed to Jeff Bezos, that changes the way you view business. Yeah. So just the process of raising money and, you know, running an organization and just dealing with the human factors of, of management and um, recruiting and all of that stuff, you know, the kind of the day-to-day -day reality of, of building an engineering organization that I couldn't have learned about uh, other than by being in the middle of it. Is that going to get reflected in, in work you do going forward? Well, I think it's reflected already in some of the books I've written, like Seven Eves, which had, or also a lot in in Dodo. So, you know, Dodo has got all kinds of. It's a comedy in which you know people are going back in time to do missions, but when they come back, they're dealing with a bureaucratic government agency that they work for. So there's there's a lot of comedy in those uh, juxtapositions. Again, Seven Eves. And um, a Termination Shock is another one, a Ream D. So I think that kind of stuff is, is now woven through uh, a lot of my books in a way that it wasn't. Like if you look at Snow Crash, you don't see any of that. The technology just is. And, and you don't and sort you, of the, the how it got there and who built it and who paid for it. Yeah. You're sort of imagining that, but you hadn't seen it up up close. Yeah, yeah. It's more, it's kind of alluded to, but um, it's not, there's no, so sort of, it's not 
part of the, the plot, particularly. Termination Shocks, your most recent book, came out in 2021. It's about uh, environmental collapse and people trying to respond to that. Obviously, it came out during the pandemic. We watched the world respond in some ways impressively to the pandemic and in a lot of ways not so still, yeah. still fighting out now whether we should wear masks and yeah. whether we should have been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the experience of the pandemic tell you about how humanity is going to respond to future catastrophes and challenges? Um, it's uh, uh, a great kind of um, object lesson, I think, in, in all of that. Um, the, um, you know, a, a, th- a threat that affects everyone, um, and that's new, it's poorly understood at first, um, the social dynamics then of how people respond to that is, um, is fascinating. Um, you know, it first hit in the United States, it first hit in my hometown, Seattle, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of spread around there. And there were uh, kind of like hero researchers at the University of Washington who risked getting in trouble to, you know, to to publish their findings. Uh, and, um, and you know, we knew people who passed away from it. And, um, um, and, you know, a couple months later, you know, New York City is, you know, completely in the grip of this thing. Uh, and, um, and, uh, but then a few months after that, it's a, it's a rural epidemic mm-hmm. you know so but the um um the the politics of how people respond how it gets co-opted by different political factions uh continues today i mean just today on my twitter feed i'm just reading all kinds of people arguing about the lab leak hypothesis yep. you know um so uh, i i don't have a like thunderous had, you know conclusion you, i mean to, if 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 Prior to the pandemic, if we sort of run through that exercise, is that something you could have said, oh, that, that makes sense. I can see how there'll be both really impressive science. They created a, a vaccine for this in record time and an enormous societal fractures over this stuff. Or was it surprising to you to see that? Uh, well, the the whole thing was was surprising. Um, you the um, – I guess the – in – entertainment we have a weakness for kind of a version of that story that's more like the last of us right so you always want to go for the big the big drama the big cinematic kind of punch and i guess this interesting thing about covid was that it didn't have that. It was not cinematic. So much of it was out of sight for so many people. And I think that's why so many people had a hard time taking it seriously. Yeah. So basically it's it's millions of people all over the world lying in uh, in isolation beds on respirators. You know, there's, there's no um, – But if you didn't want to go see them, yeah. you probably didn't. And a lot of them were older or whatever it was. And so you might not have been interacting with them. And, and it was easy to sort of imagine that it was someone else's problem. Yeah, they would just kind of disappear. And I just remember my wife's a physician and she was walking past a medical complex in um, Seattle about a year into it. And um, she you know, walked under some new construction and there was this big pipe that had been erected over the, the walkway from a, a, a new temporary facility off to one side and it was carrying oxygen. 
So there's this, this new industrial plant that they'd plonk down in the parking lot just to pipe oxygen into the lungs of COVID sufferers. And the only, like, the hospital looked the same, you know, but the only, like, visible evidence that this was going on was this pipe. And if you, if you understood the meaning of that pipe, then it was chilling mm -hmm. and, you know, very science fictional in a way. But if you didn't, it was just a pipe. You imagine the future for a living. Let's leave it here. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? So I think that like the only two things worth talking about right now are carbon and fracturing of society by social media. And they're both equally uh, concerning. I don't know what to do about the social media. You know, I'm not a people person in a lot of ways. So I tend to uh, think about carbon. I've been thinking a lot about carbon carbon sequestration in particular, geoengineering, all that stuff. How do we get the carbon emissions out of the air? How do we get, how do we reduce carbon emissions and remove the hundreds of billions of kilograms of carbon that we've already put into the air? So um, I think we'll beat that problem, but I think it's going to be the biggest engineering project in human history. It's going to change. It's going to transform the the world, their their built environment, because we simply can't do it without doing engineering on a massive scale. And I think we'll we'll succeed at it, but you know we'll have some some bad times between now and then. I, I think we'll we'll start to see the kinds of um, mass casualty events that are described in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future where you might see uh, millions of people dying of heat stroke in a certain area over a very short period of time when uh, the temperature goes up, the humidity goes up, the power goes out. And, and when that kind of stuff starts happening, which I sadly, I think it will in the next decade, it's going to have incredibly powerful political uh, ramifications. I was going to say we were ending this on cautious optimism, but I don't know if I can call it that. Well, yeah, I mean, the um, I hope that stuff doesn't happen, but I, I, I think even the threat of it is going to lead to uh, eventually to, to people taking action. It's just um, I follow Casey Hanmer on, on Twitter. He's got a company called Terraform Industries that's doing carbon removal, uh, direct air capture of, of carbon, and he's got a great thread going now about how the mentality of VCs is just whack. It's just totally wrong. They're all hooked on a certain model of how to get their money back, which is, you know, we're going to invest in software. We're going to move bits around in some clever way, and we're going to get a 100x return out of it. And um, you simply cannot build hardware that way. You've got to have a new investment thesis. I was going to ask about that. Who the the building the building the, the technology is eventually going to save us? Is that going to be government saying this must be built? We're throwing these resources there, and and which governments is that going to be? And if that's presumably the United States, we'll have a big hand in that. Or how are we going to get the U.S. to respond to a problem that in the near term is going to affect people on other continents? Yeah, I think it's going to start more with say India. Again, I'm kind of quoting from. Uh, the Kim Stanley Robinson view of things here, um, but they're the ones, they're big, they have money, they have extreme technological sophistication, 
um, and they're going to get hit hardest or soonest. So I, I think a lot of activity is going to center there. It's a weird way to end this conversation, but we're going to end the conversation. Neil Stevenson, I hope you're right, and I'm delighted you came out to talk. It was a pleasure. Thanks Thank for you. having me on. Thank you to Neil Stevenson. I hope you guys can tell how exciting that was for me. I hope it was for you. And if it wasn't, I don't know what to tell you. That was Neil Stevenson. He came talk to me. And then to you guys. That was great. Thanks again to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing this show. Our sponsors for bringing it to you for $0.00. .00. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.